Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast on how to be wrong. I'm John Trapagan, and I'm joined by my co-host in co-host in wrongness, John Cag. John, how are you doing? I just got that wrong, didn't I? <laughs> uh, thanks. Uh, um, yeah, I'm doing well, John. Thanks. So for today's episode, we're going to be doing something different. Um, instead of our usual interview with one interesting person, we have a group of interesting people who are joining us for a roundtable discussion on the influence of neoliberalism on higher education. We have a group of um, academics, scholars here who have had experience with this. And um, so hopefully we'll have an an interesting and and lively conversation. I want to thank all of you for joining us. And I'd like to begin by um, having each of our guests introduce themselves. So uh, Frank, why don't we begin with you? Well, thank you, John. We appreciate the opportunity. I certainly do, and I know my colleagues do as well to be here. My name is Frank Fear, and I'm a professor emeritus uh, and administrator emeritus at Michigan State University. Uh, spent uh, my entire uh, working academic career there, uh, almost 40 years. Uh, I'm a sociologist uh, by background, uh, focusing on community and organization development generally, specifically over the last, I'd say, 20 years of my career, looking at the higher education uh, society interface uh, with uh, through a neoliberal lens for at least the last, I'd say, 10 to 15 years. Um, And uh, when Ruben brought a group together in about 2015 uh, to look at uh, neoliberalism in higher education, uh, he invited me to participate and I was very quick to accept. There was a national conference we've run a series of uh, a forums since then, now a, uh, a video series. Uh, and we have a platform uh, called Future U. That's one word with a letter U, and you can find it on Future U, again, with the letter U, dot education. Uh, we look at different angles of, uh, of, uh, of uh, neoliberalism and higher education. Pleased to be here again. Thank you. Great. Uh, Claire? Yes. Hi, good morning. Um, So I'm Claire Polster. I'm a professor of sociology as well uh, in the Department of Sociology and Social Studies at the University of Regina, which is in Saskatchewan, Canada. So it's a prairie province. Um, My work uh, has always been on the corporatization of higher education, particularly in Canada, uh, but elsewhere elsewhere as well. And uh, My interest uh, is not only in that process, but its implications for the public interest. And as well as doing the research, I've been involved with a number of organizations and campaigns and efforts to try and resist and reverse the corporatization process. Yeah, and and thank you. I I think this is one of the things that will make this interesting is that we're dealing with North America more broadly, not just the the American higher education situation. Uh, Ruben. Good morning. I'm Ruben Martinez. I'm uh, also a sociologist, and it's good to see Claire and uh, Frank. I haven't seen Claire, I think, since uh, she uh, and colleagues had a 
hosted a similar conference up in in Regina on uh, neoliberal issues, uh, probably around 2016-17. In any case, I... uh, my areas of specialization back in the day when we had them, I think they're a little bit different today, uh, are social stratification, that is inequality in society and how it's reproduced across generations, and also political sociology. Uh, within that, I've been studying land, labor, and education issues, particularly uh, neoliberal issues in higher education for quite some time, as well as some other areas. But uh, it's uh, my pleasure to be here with you, both of you, John and John. Thank you. Um, I appreciate all, all of you joining us. And uh, I think I'll turn things over to John to ask our first sort of opening uh, question on this. Thank you all for being here. I wanted to ask, um, each of you have had a long and distinguished career in higher education. And I was wondering if you might um, articulate for our listeners the changes that you've seen in higher education over the last 20 or 30 years. Claire, I'd ask you to begin. Hmm. Yeah. So I was thinking about, you know, what the easiest way or the most straightforward way of putting this is. And I think for me, the biggest change has been a shift in um, the nature of universities in the sense that they have increasingly been operating with, for, and as businesses, as opposed to public serving universities. And this in all aspects in their, in the language that they use, in the priorities that they use, in the practices that organize them. Um, So more and more, again, as opposed to serving a broad diversity of needs and interests in order to promote the public good, increasingly universities are more and more acting with, for, and as private industries. Um, So the benefit and uses of universities' resources are increasingly being privatized, but still at the public expense, both literal and figurative. So, um, yeah, I think that's in a nutshell, but that has all kinds of ramifications, and, and you can see it in all kinds of ways, again, in the languages universities use, in the practices they use, in their reward systems, in the ways they allocate their resources, more and more, again, aimed at private needs and interests and less and less at the at the uh at the behest and in the interest of the public good that's very interesting frank can you add to that yes um you know let me start by saying that i am not a scholar of uh, neoliberalism generally or in higher education um i was a working stiff (laughs) as we all are and uh, one of the things i noticed starting about 19 85 or so, certainly by the beginning of the 90s, uh, given my outreach work at Michigan State, which um, we're a land-grant university. So uh, my, my role included a lot of work with the nonprofit sector and with the public sector. Um, and I noticed uh, things began to change, uh, both in terms of the kinds of people and the reasons uh, that, that people were drawn to the field the field, but also in terms of the structure and functions, I was most, um, I don't want to use the word shocked, but let me just say I was most um, impressed, isn't the right word, but the impact of what I saw in the nonprofit sector. Um, I had um, I had been used to working with colleagues who were um, deeply committed not that people are today, in whatever the nonprofit domain, youth, arts, you name it. And then what I began to see, people, my 
people, executives migrating in. The food bank industry is a good example, and that's what it is today. It's a food bank industry. A lot more community-based food banks before, and then I began to see folks from the food industry begin to migrate into the nonprofit sector, and the structures changed. Directors became chief executive officers. Um, The focus became more and more organization first. Uh, In fact, there's a terrific uh, article based on research, really a report uh, written by John Creighton and Richard Harwood uh, that has the title, The Organization First. Community Essentially Getting Crowded Out is essentially the, the subtitle of the report. And I began to see that. And the questions that I was being asked to help um, these quote-unquote leaders with had changed dramatically from how can we engage the community more, um, uh, you know, more extensively to how can I deal with the recalcitrant board member so that I will be able to get my agenda through. Uh, and it, it became, it, it was stunning to me. And so then what I began to do, when I saw some, the same dynamic uh, begin to creep into higher education, from my perspective, it took a while, but it really came in with full force by the end of the 90s. So I reached out to colleagues like Ruben, uh, and I began asking questions, I began reading. Uh, to try to understand, did, I didn't even know what neoliberalism was. Um, and so, um, and I'll close with this. One of the biggest issues I face now is that we tend, to a large extent, we live in a society where if you haven't experienced it, I've never experienced it before, that sometimes means it never existed. And so with younger colleagues in particular, or with both inside and outside of higher education, it's absolutely critical to go back in history and describe the way it was back then, the way it is now, and then connect uh, neoliberalism being a driver. That's a really nice point about uh, the, the necessity of a shared history in order to um, affect change in the future. Uh, Ruben, do you, do you have additional remarks? Sure. Um, I started my career in the early 80s. I think the first indicator of the changes that were taking place was uh, hearing my department chair go on and on about this notion that we should think of students as customers. I mean, basically, he was against it, and he was always railing against it. But I didn't really completely understand, you know, what that meant, um, because neoliberalism as a social movement uh, both in, in Western society and here in the United States, um, hadn't really taken hold. I mean, uh, it was with, here in the United States, it was with Reagan. Uh, but some of the changes that we have seen, first of all, you know, uh, it's kind of like the uh, recognition that, you know, higher education is part of the larger society and it reflects the trends in the larger society. Uh, and, you know, that larger trend is neoliberalism, which is, uh, a movement to impose market logic on all aspects of society, basically. And so we can deduce from that that uh, so higher education would then begin to fill that role. So what we saw was not only students being uh, seen as customers, uh, particularly by elected officials, but also the shift in the meaning of a higher education that is going from a public good to a private good, and then the escalation of tuition 
that has led to the serious uh, student debt that we have seen. Um, we were really, I think, and some may disagree with you, uh, with me, and that is that uh, higher education was relatively effective at resisting the imposition of market logic. Uh, so we were one of the last institutions to to begin to institutionalize a lot of that, primarily, in my view, with the change in reward structures and uh, performance-based uh, funding, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but with sort of the fracturing of neoliberalism since the uh, Great Recession of 2008, uh, I think there's been some uh, opportunity to openly discuss what it means to have a, uh, what uh, higher education means in society. Ruben, you, you uh, uh, preempted my well, question I was going to ask next, next, which is sort of to define neoliberalism, neoliberalism and that's uh, that's very helpful. I you, you raised, a, I think, a really important point here, though, that um, the idea of the student as customer, and this, I mean, I hear this all the time at my university. In fact, it's gotten to the point now where, you know, if I go to the IT people, they tell me I'm a customer. And I'm like, no, we work for the same institution. I'm not your customer. It really fascinates me that that model has become so pervasive. I wonder if, if each of you could talk a little bit about that as a component. I'd be curious about how that's also happened in Canada. Um, and the other thing that I think is interesting with this is that that along with that change, what we've seen is the defunding of public universities in the United States. So if you go back to the 1980s, I, I think my university was getting about 80% of its operating budget from the state. Today, University of Texas, I think, gets somewhere around 11 or 12%. And that has forced um, administrators to think in terms of, you know, the, the market and money in some ways, because you've got to you've got to figure out how to fund um, this. So I, I wonder if, if each of you could talk a little bit about uh, boy, that that customer model and also this problem of defunding. I'm going to start with Claire because I'm curious if the defunding issue has happened in Canada um, as well as this kind of customer centered mindset. Yeah. Okay, I'll start with um, the defunding issue. I think that's it's a really interesting question. When people ask, you know, why have universities corporatized or become more private in nature and more neoliberal in nature, the dominant answer I think people give is because of government underfunding. And while it is absolutely true that public funding for universities has declined, I always want to emphasize to people that it's not simply how much money going into the university. That's not the only thing that's changed. How money is going into the universities has changed. So a considerable amount of public money still is going in, but it's going in in order to promote um, and uh, support different kinds of university practices, primarily university industry partnerships. So there's lots and lots of money going into universities in new ways in order to promote privatization. And the reason why I want to emphasize this is because a lot of people say, oh, uh, the reason why universities are doing this is because they're underfunded. So let's just fund them better and then they can go back to being public serving institutions. And what I always say is that that's not necessarily what's going to be happening because channels have been established 
through which this new money is going into the institution. And if you pour more money into the institution, it's going to stay in these channels. So you need to do other things rather than just pour more money into the university. You need to change the practices in and through which this money flows and in and through which people in the university are hooked up to particular constituencies. Not sure if people are understanding what I'm saying here, but what uh, the point is, is that um, universities have created new kinds of partnerships in part because of the ways governments have promoted university industry linkages. Um, and just putting in more money is not going to change that. In fact, it's going to reinforce the new relations that have been put put into place. So um, it is, it, yeah, I guess maybe that's what I would say about the defunding. Not sure if, if people are following, can you give me a, yes, you're understanding yeah, what I'm really, saying. Well, I think it's a really important point. I think about it, my only university, we have a, a, an institute called the IC squared Institute, which is a business incubator. That was what it was designed to do. And, and this is a place where I think a lot of private funds have gone into that, but I, I think public funds have as well. And, you know, the idea has been that rather than the university as a, you know, public servant in terms of research and teaching, it's a, uh, an engine to generate business um, and entrepreneurialism and, and I think you make a really important point that it, it can't be just increasing the funds. Um, we've got to rethink what the mission of the university is and therefore how those funds are used. Exactly. And we need to look at, for example, state policies. So if you look at, for example, the public, the public funding for universities in Canada, granting councils have played an active role in moving uh, research programs away from basic research towards applied research and industry-oriented research. So there's been a huge shift away from one kind of funding to another, which in turn impacts all kinds of things. It impacts research agendas. It impacts performance assessment, right? What you get rewarded for, what you don't get rewarded for. So things are much more complicated than just a question of money. There have been significant transformations in the institutions that are not going to be undone and in fact will be reinforced simply by putting in more money. We really need to look instead at the organization and how it has been shifted in one direction and talk about ways to shift that back. Um, as for the client thing, um, for sure, faculty as well as students are increasingly treated by some units of the university as clients. But more, I think, in terms of faculty, we are increasingly treated as employees of the institution rather than as colleagues um, who collegially govern and manage the university. So one of those big shifts that you were asking about earlier, John, has been a real marginalization and exclusion of faculty from policymaking processes. We've been converted more into policy critics or consultants who get you know, to comment on or to send into the ether our comments on proposals that we see. Um, and we don't get the opportunity to collectively discuss and define and shape policy, which again dovetails with what I was just talking about in terms of government policy and the whole organization of the institution as well. So it's, it's pretty complicated what's been happening, but I do, um, uh, yeah, I think there, there are not very simple direct solutions here. It's a much more complicated process to undo than simply looking at the funding issue. Yeah. Uh, Ruben, I saw you shaking your head. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I agree with what 
uh, Claire is saying, it's not exactly defunding so much as it is shifting of sources of funds. So what we've seen is a reduction in state funding, which had increased, you know, at the turn of the 20th century and as uh, access to higher education increased, the federal government came in uh, more and so on. But, uh, you know, sources of funding are, we just shifted the cost of tuition from the state funding uh, part of that, subsidizing it, uh, to the families, right? If, if, if higher education is a private good, then obviously you should pay for it. You or the student and your family should pay for it. So that got shifted over to, to the students. We've also seen a shift uh, in, in this entrepreneurial model as well uh, here in the United States to a great amount of funding by the federal government, primarily under the review that... Uh, you know, universities ought to have a service function, which I think is a good thing, but also has some implications for this entrepreneurial faculty that's being developed. And secondly, uh, for the uh, good that it's doing for, for society. So that's really kind of a, a, a dualistic kind of uh, activity that's taking place. But what it does do is kind of narrow uh, the research interests of the faculty, because if you're forced to you know, chase the dollars, uh, you know, the dollars come with strings attached. <laughs> they, you can't study just anything that you want, which is what we had before. You have to study whatever the funder wants you to study. Uh, and so that has, I think, some some serious consequences. Ruben, you, you kind of created a juxtaposition here that I think is interesting. I wonder if you could explore this a little bit more. You described edu- higher education as a private good. Then you talked about public education and, you know, which basically points to the question of higher education as a public good. And I think this is where something has really changed in the way people think about education in general, not just higher education. I wonder if you could talk about that, that contrast there between education as a private good and as a public good. Yeah, I think the, the private good of education is at the individual level. And then the public good of the of higher education is at the institutional level. Uh, so in a sense, you know, neoliberalism is forcing higher education to, in some cases, be, or in most cases, be the servant of capitalism, as opposed to being a broader-based uh, institution that helps humans understand not only their existence here, uh, but the many dimensions of their existence and what might be possible for a higher level of civilization, which I think was part of, uh, you know, teaching and, and, and human development and so forth. But reducing it to the servant of, uh, of the market, uh, I think is very different. So I would see, you know, this, you know, the private good at the individual level and the public good of the institution uh, at the institutional level, but serving the needs of the market. Yeah, I, I, as I thought about it, to, to me, I see education, I do see the private good component of it, but there's a side to me that I see it as very much a public good on the basis of, I just don't want to be surrounded by idiots. Um, I want to live in a society with people who are not ignorant and who have the critical thinking skills to engage and, and, you know, think about who they're electing. Think about the policies. I don't really care so much what the policies are or who they're, you know, electing, but to be able to truly critically think about it. To me, that's always been kind of, kind of the chief public good of education is that it, it creates, if it works properly, it creates a society of people who can engage in the problems that they face in a, in a, in a rational and thoughtful way. And 
I think we're seeing the results of that not working very well. <laughs> it's happening in the Capitol right now in the U.S. But uh, so, Frank, what are your thoughts on this? Well, let me key off um, several observations my colleagues have made. Let me try to tackle my own the definition of neoliberalism as I see it. Um, obviously, in the literature, there are a lot of different angles on this from a public policy point of view. But as I've lived it, let's say the lived experience, I always took the position that the driving force for us is our work. Uh, whatever our, our domain of scholarship is, that was our passion. What neoliberalism has come to me in higher education and broadly is an obsession not an obsession with the work, whatever it might be, but an obsession with, with money and markets and positioning. Uh, where are we with respect to peers, individually or collectively? Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, toward the end of my time at Michigan State, uh, anybody who's been in administration can relate to the story. You get a telephone call from a, the highest level of the university or from a high level of the university, we needed to have a conversation, uh, gather these data and send them to me and then we'll talk. And I did. Nothing unusual. And it was about the amount of funds uh, that our particular entity uh, had generated, faculty, had grants and so on, um, over the last 10 years. And I graphed it out and it looked really good, uh, particularly in terms of the rest of the university. So I got over there and, uh, of course, uh, the person I was meeting with had already digested that and said, you know, this chart looks really good over the last 10 years. And I knew there was going to be an outcome here, but I did something next that was not the appropriate response. The person said to me, what we need you to do now is to generate in one year what your entity has generated in 10 years. And I laughed. Uh, and it was not a joke. It was not uh, meant for levity. It was leave the room, Frank. This is your obligation. You will now you will now generate sufficient resources so that next year, which will come in, the total amount will be equal to what the entity you're responsible for had generated in the last decade. Um, and again, when you when I thought about that, uh, there really was no anger because I said to myself. What else do you expect? In fact, he used a, he used a tagline, which I, I'll never forget. He said, the problem that I see in the data is you do not have enough big plays. There are a lot of smaller grants and contracts, but, but there aren't enough big plays. And so what I did then, um, talking to my boss, is we assembled a group of faculty with the expressed goal of what can we do to generate big plays? Said nothing about whose lives will be better because of this work. It said nothing about who would be doing what research or outreach. The whole focus was on this corporate outcome um, of generating more and more dollars so that uh, our numbers look better and better, both over time internally and also in comparisons. And it made me think about the fact that Going back to what Claire talked about in terms of the university as a business, I said, we've been invaded now uh, by folks who are corporatists. And I know that word has a lot of different definitions where we now have replaced outcomes associated with our work 
with outcomes associated with the organization. Uh, and I said, boy, that's a subversion uh, and it's bordering on a corruption of mission uh, because it goes back to what I said earlier. It's putting the organization first. Are we here to make the world a better, uh, make the world better, or are we here to make ourselves look better? And I know it's not, you know, it's not either or, it's, it's both. But that again, I, I give that story because it was a lived experience that showed the difference between um, the way it was before, I can't imagine that conversation being held, and the way it was. Claire, I want to get your thoughts on this in a second, but I, I want to sort of throw something else into the mix, which is, it seems to me that the real, um, the real losers in this might be the students, um, primarily because this shift to research based on monetary outcomes, um, this affects the way that full-time faculty um, get tenure and becomes the primary way that we understand full, full-time full employment at a university and teaching drops out of the mix. And it seems to me that um, when students are engaged in a transactional way where they come to the university for a particular certificate at a particular monetary value, the substance of what is actually being learned oftentimes drops out of the equation. And that's as a human, as a member of the humanities, I mean, as a philosopher, I'm concerned about this because I don't go for those big grants. And, um, and many of my humanities, you know, colleagues don't either. And, um, and I'm kind of concerned about the way that the story that you've just told Frank, which seems to have to do a lot with the way that departments are set up and the, you know, the obligations placed on, um, full-time employee in, you know, professors, um, full-time professors actually does have a trickle down effect into what is being taught, uh, to, uh, students um, and the way that they might grow into, you know, responsible, thoughtful citizens, um, community members. Anyway, Claire, yeah, I don't want to derail this, but I just wanted to add that. Claire, do you want to um, speak a little bit to the way that um, neoliberal and capitalist pressures uh, push into particular uh, entities such as departments or sure. I know that, that's where Frank was? Yeah. There, there's so many threads to this, and they all interweave in so many complex ways and directions. But let me uh, start by saying what I understand neoliberalism to be. So for me, I actually see two aspects to neoliberalism, specifically in the university. So I see it as involving a transfer of control use and or benefits of the university's resources from public interest towards private interest. So really what I understand to be happening in the university is the control uh, over the use and benefits of what are largely public si publicly subsidized resources towards private needs and interests and away from public needs and interests. At the same time, I think the other really important aspect of neoliberalism, which fits into this conversation, is an encouragement or inducement uh, for people to start prioritizing their own 
needs and interests and the well-being of those on whom their interests depend rather than, again, the public interest. So if you're talking about faculty, for example, as Frank and Ruben were saying, they are prioritizing getting research grants and the needs and interests of those who can provide them because that's what they're being rewarded for. Um, And I agree with you that that leads them to often uh, neglect their teaching responsibilities. On the other hand, I also want to say because universities are becoming more corporate in nature, um, professors who are able to bring in lots of grants are rewarded by not having to teach students anymore. And that brings in the whole production of the precarious part-time professoriate, right? Um, who are, you know, overworked, underpaid, feeling very insecure, which uh, leads them often to dumb down their courses or, uh, you know, cater more to students' needs and students who are feeling themselves more as customers, demanding their A's uh, because they paid for their courses. So you can see a whole transformation of what's going on in the universities and then the social implications of that. So when you, John, were asking about uh, private interest, public interest, I think uh, students are the kind of treatment they get and the kind of subjects that they are being turned into less and less serve the public good and their own good. They are becoming more entrepreneurial themselves. And and as you rightly point out, that has all kinds of implications in the wider societies for the kinds of people that we are producing in the institution, right? So, So you can see all of this shifting things in some very problematic and troubling ways um, that are all interconnected with one another. Yeah, I, um, the, the, the word that seems to be running through much of this conversation at the moment is numbers or maybe metrics. One of the things that has struck me is the way we have shifted uh, to uh, what I have referred to maybe not very originally as a quantocracy. I think we see it in our society very broadly, uh, whether it's, you know, how many followers you have on Twitter or whatever it is. But in the university, everything seems to be driven by numbers right now, by metrics. I In my university, um, Several years ago, they started a policy where um, they would set benchmarks for how many butts you had to have in seats by college, and they would they attached your budget to that. So if you went over your benchmark for butts and seats, you got more money. But if you were under your benchmark, they took money away. And of course, what that leads to is a situation in where um, fields like the humanities which aren't attracting as many students, they lose funding and very applied areas like business and engineering get more money and it just keeps feeding itself. And it's all just driven by a numbers game that's being played over, you know, the value of a butt in a seat. That's in essence what's going on. That's how our students are often being treated, I think, in higher education as a, as a sort of value point rather than as a future citizen who we need to, you know, work with and help to grow and this sort of thing. I, I don't know what others might think about that if they've seen those things in their universities. Yeah, I think metrics has been used as a tool to bring about compliance uh, and to bring people around to toe the line of the change that politicians want and so forth. Uh, part of the problem, too, has been that neoliberalism in the larger society kind of, at least here in the United States, kind of led to the decline of, uh, 
and downward mobility of the middle class, which has created incredible uh, disenchantment, frustration, and so on. Uh, and they're calling, you know, particularly Republicans have very little uh, faith in higher education. Uh, their view is basically that we're just a bunch of pointy-headed faculty who are indoctrinating students into socialist ideas and so on, which is way off the mark. Uh, you know, that's the ideology that has been inculcated. Uh, and so they want accountability. They want, exper having experienced that uh, downward mobility, uh, they're paying for their children's education, but they want them to get a job a good paying job when they get out. So, you know, it's uh, it's part of that multi-layered, multi-dimensional features that Claire has been talking about. You know, one of the things as I'm listening to this conversation reminds me of is that even though we're talking about neoliberalism in higher education, the institution, it's really important to talk, to frame it in terms of the neoliberal society. Because what's happened over the years is that at the individual level, uh, sort of what I'll call the neoliberal ethic uh, has become more and more ingrained in people as the way it is. So, for example, the story I gave, you must increase your fundraising target from what you generated in one year uh, now to you've got to generate in one year what you did in 10. There will be a lot of people I know that would applaud that and they would say that's accountability. Uh, and so as a consequence, what we see, I think, is... Um, a, an endorsement. In fact, I would go far, so far to say is you can be very successful in your career if you take a neoliberal approach. You can be very successful in, in your, you know, not just in higher education, if you are, if you take a neoliberal approach, uh, because you'll be able to, quote unquote, you'll be able to produce the goods. You'll be able to get the outcomes. When you think about what boards demand, of executive directors and CEOs. When you think about what um, committees, hiring committees look for when they're screening candidates, uh, it's the kinds of things we're saying, hey, there's a problem here. Well, not for them. That's exactly what they're looking for. And so one of the dynamics that I experienced over time is that having been mentored by so many colleagues as, as each of us has been over the years, I'm saying this is not what I was taught this was not what I learned. It doesn't fit anymore. And the last point I'll make, I think, is extremely important. And, and I'm working on a paper on this now. Uh, and that is the impact of neoliberalism over time is such that longstanding, traditional, obviously, even sacred concepts begin to lose that their meaning from what they have. For example... Um, I don't know what organic agriculture means anymore. I did 15 years ago, uh, and I work closely with people who are involved in organic agriculture. But then the, the corporate sector invaded, and I'm not sure what it is right now. Um, I know what, you know, uh, what I can buy going down the street at a local farm, but what happens when I go to the grocery store and look in the, in, you know, to get something that has organic on its label? label. The same thing I could say of college. I don't know what that word means anymore. And I'll stop with a short story. I read an article not long ago, uh, and it was an executive director, president, whatever, of a technical school uh, in the state in which I uh, live. And the reporter asked this person in charge, I see you're changing the name from technical institute to college. 
Uh, and his response was, well, it has more cachet. What wasn't answered, is it really a college? And so what's happened now in higher education, for example, is I'm not sure what the purpose of higher education is anymore. I'm not sure what um, the purpose of a college education is anymore. But what I'm hearing more and more, it's about jobs. It's about return on investment. And I, I've seen multiple evaluations recently that evaluate colleges as good and bad based on how much graduates are earning uh, after 10 years. And the other thing is <laughs> what the graduation rate is. And I, I laughed one day and I mentioned to my, my spouse, I said, we sat in seats decades ago. We got the same, basically the same orientation speech. Look to the left of you, look to the right of you. Two of you won't be there next year. Now, hell, you can't do that. You've got to retain those students and you've got to get them graduated. Now, are they educated is a question we don't answer. We don't even raise it. Yeah, clear. I, I just want to put another wrinkle into the discussion of all these metrics, because at the same time that they are becoming so widespread in our universities, everybody within the university knows how uh, inadequate they are um, and how the emperor has no clothes, right? We all know that um, impact factors, all the problems in the organization of impact factors, right? What journals are included, what journals aren't included. Like academics are subjected to these things, which at the same time they know are so meaningless and harmful. And I, at some point, I'm assuming we're going to get into discussion of how we deal with this and how we push back. But I do think um, there's a lot of leverage here as well, because at the same time, that universities use these things, um, they also produce all kinds of dysfunction within the university itself. They are very costly. For example, even just performance assessment of faculty takes tons of time, produces tons of acrimony, at least in Canada, lots of grievances. It causes stress um, among faculty, which as well can be very costly. It leads to an increase in academic fraud and dishonesty, which we also know a lot about that's harmful to to the public. So um, at the same time that this is ongoing, I do want to emphasize that people are very well aware. It's almost even more perverse that faculty understand how problematic these things are and yet succumb or exceed to them. Um, but I do think there's a lot of leverage or potential to get in there um, to show the problems with them and to push back against them. Uh, maybe, I, I mean, uh, Claire, you said we're going to turn to the question of what should we do? Um, how do we push back against this? Maybe we can pose this in a more uh, clear question. What do we do to push back against these uh, neoliberal forces? Uh, and at what level um, can we push back? Do we push back at the administrative level or the faculty level or the student level or uh, public, you know, pu the, the public level? So maybe... Uh, Ruben, could you start start and say, what would you do or what would you recommend doing to push back? Well, you know, I'm reminded of a presentation that His Excellency Michael Higgins, uh, president of Ireland, as it gave at the uh, Scholars at Risk conference a couple of years ago, I think. And what he suggested is that we offer, uh, I'm not sure it's a required course or not, but at least offer a course on the university. 
uh, at the university. Uh, and I think it really is time to do that because we've lost sight, as Frank was saying, he's lost sight of what the university is about uh, in the larger society. So I think that would be a starting point that, uh, you know, the next generation really needs to understand both the history of the university and society, its role, uh, and what its contributions uh, should be uh, in relation to humanity and not in relation to a particular economic or social order. Uh, I think that's the starting point. Uh, the other one is we've got, you know, we haven't talked yet about administrative bloat, you know, those administrators that were brought in to sort of make us toe the line uh, and impose metrics and all that kind of stuff. And really, in many ways, uh, I would say, have usurped the responsibilities of faculty and shared governance, shared governance. You know, I was a faculty leader uh, back in the 80s and 90s, and we had uh, uh, faculty committees on university budgets and all kinds of other things. And those things have just simply gone away. We, we, uh, you know, our roles as faculty has shifted over to the entrepreneurial activities and our traditional role of faculty in academic and shared governance uh, has just been diminished and taken over by administrators who are in many instances not uh, what we would call academic administrators. So I think those are two critical areas for me. Uh, where we need to begin to to push back. We need to recover shared faculty shared governance activity, principally, and we need to educate our students as we go into the future, as John was suggesting. Uh, you know, we need informed uh, citizens <laughs> who understand what their role is in a democracy and in improving uh, human existence and so forth. Uh, and I think that those two items would be a starting point for me. Claire, do you have thoughts about next steps? Oh my God, I have so many thoughts about next steps. Before I talk about that though, I really wanna to emphasize too that stuff is happening as we speak, right? There are a lot of people who are mobilized in their faculty associations. There's been quite a bit of strike activity, um, I, I believe in the United States. I know in Canada, particularly around COVID, which gives us a real opening in some ways as well, because we've seen the corporate university really show uh, its intentions and you know things have become a lot clearer recently as well. Um, so acknowledge what's been done. I think um, another thing that I would say um, is I think very often the way we respond to neoliberalism is to react to what has happened. So, for example, we don't like... Um, well, I think there's two things. We react in the wrong way. We don't like increased managerialism in the institution. So one thing a lot of people try to do is get rid of particular managers who they don't like. So there's been lots of non-confidence votes, for example, in universities trying to get rid of people. To me, it's not the individuals, but it's actually the the institutional relations that have to change. Um, so... Um, but even so, I think being reactive is not necessarily the best thing to do. What we might also want to do is start enunciating or fleshing out the vision of the university that we would like to see and then putting things into place that help realize that. So, for again, for example, um, 
if we are concerned about university industry linkages and all the harms that come out of that, rather than, for example, putting new policies into place, you know, to avoid conflict of interest, for example, what we could and might really consider doing is setting up new kinds of institutions like the Dutch science shops that put university resources at the disposal of community groups who are facing particular problems but can't afford to um, sorry, oh, I'm reading a chat here, sorry, that can't afford to uh, pay for academic research. So this actually puts into place very different kinds of relationships between the university and the broader community that currently exists and help to bring about a new vision of a university that is much more public serving as opposed to privately serving. Or if we're concerned, for example, as Ruben was saying about increased managerialism and the marginalization of faculty from academic governance, instead of trying to go in there and convince managers to give us more uh, say in institutional deliberations, we might set up our own institutions like general assemblies that allow faculty to come together to talk about uh, what's going on and devise our own policies to then pressure administrators to give us more power. So all that I'm saying is, again, rather than being reactive and fighting against what is currently happening, we might want to, again, elaborate or imagine the vision of the university we wish to see and put into place structures and relations that help cultivate that kind of institution and make the university less hospitable to the things that we would not like to see. So that was one thing that I would offer. There's many others, but I think that that's an idea I would share here. Frank, do you have, uh, do you have thoughts about next steps? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Let me come at it from a different angle. Um, because the neoliberalism is mature. This is a mature um, force. Uh, let's, I want to focus on it from the individual level. Both um, parents, young people making college decisions, faculty members, uh, particularly young faculty members starting their career, and faculty members who are in uh, what we now know as a sea change. And really take a page out of uh, the philosopher Rousseau, French philosopher uh, from the Enlightenment period. Uh, one of the things he said was when he saw things happening way back when, uh, centuries ago, protect yourself against the mainstream. And he was talking, writing specifically about children. Uh, but it, when you think about it from the point of view, um, it's really important to, to make sure, I think, at the individual level, that you're not... Um, overrun, blown away, moved from the kinds of things you really embrace. Colleges are not the same. Universities are not the same. It's really important, I think, for young people and, uh, and parents to look very closely at the options and to pick the, the environment that obviously is best for them. It used to be a much more uh, easily answered question because it was related to the subject matter you're studying. Now it's much broader than that. And I would say for faculty members to find a way when you can express your passion for your work and not get swept up into this, this broader churn that will really, the motivation really institutionally is to convert you from where you were uh, into something they prefer. So it's sort of like a basketball coach. Okay, recruit. Now I know how you, you shoot a jump shot. I know how you rebound. That's not how we do it here. And over the next two years, you're going to do it my way. 
And I see that happening over and over again. And I think that there are a lot of ways in which both, and we see this on campus, that students can take a very active involvement, and they do, and organize to rail against neoliberalism. Uh, and as Claire mentioned, we're seeing this on campus too. Uh, and it's a way of being able to be the person you want to be, do the work that you want to do uh, without being forced, compelled to be something that you're not, that aligns with the prevailing approach to neoliberalism. Frank, I, I'm, I'm curious, something that, you know, as we've been talking, it, it has struck me. Um, I, I have found many times that people who've gone into administration out of the faculty ranks, I later find myself thinking, well, what the hell happened? Um, and, uh, you know, what, what does happen? I mean, is this some kind of weird thing that happens when you go into administration that you're all that you were as a member of the faculty suddenly turns into, well, we need to count 25 things here. And, you know, why does the change happen? Is it the, is it the institutional structure is so powerful that you just can't work outside of it? Because, you know, it's like people like us could all have gone into administration, could go into, I think, Frank, you've been in administration. Um, I know that John has, he's been a department chair. Um, it, but you try to resist it. And what it, it sort of, I think about is, you know, I've sat on many promotion and tenure committee meetings for my college. And whenever it comes up, when we talk about teaching, the first thing that we bring up, of course, is the numbers on the course instructor surveys. And then, of course, several people will point out, well, those numbers are very flawed. They don't really reflect quality of teaching. And everyone goes, yeah, that's right. And then they go on and judge everybody in terms of those numbers. Why does this happen? Well, it's, that's a great question, and I think it has many answers. Um, you know, if you ask 10 people the question you're raising, John, you probably would get 10 plus answers. But I, I would know from my personal experience, from my personal experience uh, I did try to do personally what I've just recommended others do, and that is as you move from, from a faculty role into administration, and I started my administrative career in 1987, and I retired in 2012. So it spanned really the time when neoliberalism was really starting to, to be a force, and then when it became a hurricane tornadic force, uh, is that you, you do the same thing. In other words, you, you, can't, you cannot not do what is being expected of you from the higher levels, but what you can do, uh, and I tried to do, was to navigate with colleagues those um, those difficult boundaries so that you are engaging in your roles so that you're not, you try not to make a bad situation worse. Uh, and you have to be very careful because uh, you can't be a guerrilla in a bureaucracy and continue. I mean, I became really outspoken after I retired. So you can't do that. But one of the things that I did toward the end of my career I became sort of uh, engaged in triage. Uh, faculty members who had been uh, abused, bowled over, um, mystified by what was happening to them, uh, I would get involved in trying to help. One, another story that may help is a department chair would not support the recommendation of a faculty member uh, for uh, promotion to the rank of associate professor with tenure. Uh, we looked at his credentials and said, there's every reason here 
um, to say this, this person should be promoted with tenure. So one of the things you do is you look for allies around the university. And so I went over to the person who is in charge of academic, um, academic affairs for the university, and he came up with a brilliant plan, which essentially ripped up this person's job description, wrote a new description, would not accept the department chair's recommendation, gave this person two more years to function in the reframe job description, then we'll have a review. Bottom line was that faculty member took the reframe position and he was up within a year and he was awarded uh, uh, tenure with promotion to associate professor. So you have to figure out ways to be able to do what you need to do in an environment that's clearly not to your liking uh, to help others. Ruben, I, yes, you had a comment. Yeah, I'd just like to add that, you know, we must keep in mind that uh, neoliberalism was a powerful social movement that transformed many institutions in society. Uh, presidents of universities, chancellors, were under tremendous political pressure, external political pressure, uh, to bring about and implement some of the changes that were being demanded by them. And if they didn't, there were threats to reduce uh, even further some of the funding and so forth. We also need to keep in mind, you know, speaking more directly to your question, John, uh, that as senior administrators, uh, we were at will employees. Uh, at any point in time, if we didn't toe the line, we could be sent back to the uh, uh, faculty ranks, uh, which, uh, you know, happened to many. Uh, and, you know, at the conference that I organized in, in 2015, one of our keynote speakers, I forget his name, was uh, was, was the president of, of university. He was fired twice for being a reluctant uh embracer of neoliberal principles and trying to defend, uh, you know, the, the academy and so on. Uh, so I think it's very important to, to keep in mind just how powerful the neoliberal movement has been uh, and that it was imposed uh, in stealth mode so that, as Frank suggested early on, uh, he didn't know what was happening. I didn't know what was happening until, you know, the transformation had already tipped the balance and we said, hey, uh, what happened here? Uh, but it's not, you know, that our colleagues who become administrators are, are uh, you know, unwilling to try to stand up. It's that uh, the system is just set up in a way where if you don't toe the line, uh, you're out. And, you know, I've been a, a faculty governance leader. I've been a senior administrator. I've been department chair several times. I've run several uh, research institutes. Uh, and you just have to learn to navigate those waters and try to find the spaces in which you can continue to try to be true uh, to the mission uh, of a university as we understand it. Uh, just uh, one small point to add, and that is, I think, from my perspective, and I have not been a senior administrator, one other really important thing is, is that sometimes I think administrators try to fix things on their own. And this is a systemic problem that is not fixable by any individual. I know lots of, I've seen in my own university, really excellent people, you know, who are faculty uh, union leaders who become administrators. But the problem is, is they try to change things as individuals. And again, you can't change a system as an individual. This needs to be a collective effort, including you know, progressive administrators, but as well, faculty, students, staff, and members outside of the university. This is not something that any individual can change on their own. 
This has been a really amazing conversation. Um, is there anything that you folks would like to add um, before we say goodbye? Go ahead, Ruben. I would just add that uh, the neoliberal, the hegemonic grip of neoliberalism on society, at least uh, in Western societies, uh, has lessened. And that there are now spaces where we can openly question uh, neoliberalism, and we need to question it more in uh, higher education. You know, a lot of our colleagues still don't understand or take for granted the current situation in higher education as the way that it should be. Uh, and so I think uh, there are spaces uh, that we can openly discuss these kinds of issues, and the academy is the place to do it. So I hope that we can continue to do this. Yeah. Um, so my new favorite saying, I often have a favorite saying that kind of guides my behavior for the time being. And my new favorite saying, which I don't know the actual source of, is to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. And echoing then what Ruben just said, I think uh, there are a lot of spaces, there are a lot of great things that are being done that we don't hear about. Uh, there's a lot of creative and innovative steps that we can take. I mentioned just general assemblies and science shops there, uh, creative declarations, Aberdeen's manifesto for the university, there's community economic development projects, there's all kinds of things going on in other places as well. And I, I want to say, especially in terms of Canadian academics, but I think this goes for academics everywhere, I think we underestimate still some of the power and potential we have to make change. And so we need to, instead of just again, caving into despair, recognize the power that we have, put a lot of our energy into making positive change as opposed to trying to struggle with and just cope with neoliberalism, which only perpetuates the problems that we're in. So it's a measure, and it's, this isn't fake optimism and hope. I think there really is potential here. Um, we just need to you know, get it together and get on with it. Yeah, I would just add that it, it really uh, comes down to what we do as individuals, each one of us, um, we can criticize certainly, and that's easily done. You see that on social media all the time. But the question is, okay, what do you stand for and what are you willing to actually do? Uh, and also to be uh, a part of a member of social networks of people who are like-minded. I look at it as sort of the electrical flow. You know, it's uh, you can gain energy or you can lose energy. And I think one of the things that happens often is that we're in social networks where that, that are draining. They drain our energy. Uh, and as Claire uh, said, used the word, you become hopeless. You feel hopeless. So the question is to be uh, surround yourself with, with colleagues. Uh, I have that in Ruben that give you hope, that give you energy, that you can work together on things that will move um, whatever, the institution or your own work forward in ways you can feel proud of. And, and you just can't focus always on those macro, large, overwhelming, outside of your control matters. Yeah, that's a, those are all great observations. I, I think I would also extend Frank's comment to say, beyond one's own institution as well. I think making the linkages across different institutions and finding people you can work with and think about these things with is, is a very powerful way to try to address. I think what, what 
is something that we really need to do is that we, we need to re reinvent the university in a way that makes it more responsive to the needs of our societies. And that's where we're struggling right now. Um, so I would just uh, say, you know, Frank, Claire, Ruben, I want to thank you so much for joining us on How to Be Wrong. This has been a fantastic conversation. I think it's something that people will get a lot out of. And, uh, um, you know, uh, hopefully we'll remain in touch and, and talk about this more. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having us today.